Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone, so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators, any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, science writer Elizabeth Svoboda shares her insights from her book about the science behind altruism and selfishness and how we can make that into a practice and become heroes in our everyday lives. Elizabeth, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking that time to join us. Thanks for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. Yeah, well, our listeners don't know that this is take three of our attempt to do this, but uh, (laughs) you you and I go way back to days before any of this even existed um, through a mutual friend of ours who really is probably one of the most creative and insanely interesting people on the face of the planet. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, your story really intrigued me personally. So on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your story, your background, your journey, and how that has led you to where you're at and what you're up to in the world today? Yeah, so of course there are many parts to the story. And I guess if you really want the very beginning, you almost have to go back to my childhood. Um, I grew up in uh, a town in upstate New York, uh, Rochester, the suburb of Brighton, specifically, where um, there was a pretty large Jewish community and a a fair number of them came from uh, refugee families. And so I grew up playing with a lot of Jewish friends. And when I was about 10 or 11, I started reading and hearing about what had happened during the Holocaust and, you know, the fact that Jewish people had been killed in this massive genocide. And it absolutely blew my mind. And I went through this period where I think I read every book about the Holocaust that I could find, you know, to try to really understand this. But, you know, no matter how much I read or how much I learned, I still couldn't really wrap my mind around it. And I know I got comments from my mom during that time, like, you know, you're too focused on the stuff, you know, you're too oriented toward the dark side. Like, why why do you want to learn about this stuff? But I think it was important for me in understanding, like, the depths that people are capable of. Like, we're capable of such extremes of evil as well as kindness and goodness. And I think, you know, the, the first part was that it was really important for me to understand those two extremes. And, you know, a lot of questions came out of that, like, you know, how is it possible for people to do this kind of thing to others? Um, But on the other side of it is that there were the heroic rescuers, like those who were willing to save uh, people from the genocide. And, you know, what made the difference between the rescuers 
um, and, and, you know, people who just stood by and watched and then even the, the perpetrators. So, so I had these questions in my mind and, um, you know, it's interesting. This is one thing I was talking about with people recently, a few years ago, um, I actually went through sort of a tough period in my life career wise. And, um, it, it kind of led me into a period of fairly significant, depression. Um, you know, the gist of it is that I was pretty overwhelmed by um, the kind of comments and criticism that you can get when you're writing about controversial topics online, like especially in this day and age when you can get a 100 comments on one story within the span of an hour. And, you know, it just started to pile up and pile up on me. And for a while, I became pretty down. Like, you, you know, it got to the point where it was almost like physical symptoms and just going through the day was, was pretty difficult. And, um, if you know, if you've ever been through this kind of thing, everything kind of feels very hopeless because your thoughts are a little bit distorted too, and you can't really see your problems, um, realistically. And, um, thankfully, you know, I, I was able to recover, you know, with support and with help over the next few months, but, um, something happened that I didn't expect, and, and that was that um, going through that really difficult experience sort of changed the way I thought about things. Like, sort of the silver lining of it was that I, I found that I was better able to empathize with other people who had dealt through, dealt with, you know, depression or anxiety or, or any of these types of of issues, like, because I really had been there, like, I had been in that dark place myself. And so, you know, so, sometimes that's where the empathy comes from is having a personal knowledge of what it's like to be there. And, you know, when I talk to people about stuff like this, I, I feel like they could tell that I was coming from a more genuine place. And maybe I got, you know, that kind of suffering in a way that I wouldn't have before. And so, you know, I started wondering, you know, is there a connection between, you know, going through these tough things and then, you know, becoming more empathetic or more altruistic or oriented to others on the other side of that? Um, because I could see the truth of that in my own life. And so just out of curiosity, I did a little bit of scouting around the academic literature. And I found that there was a researcher out there who was studying a very similar idea. Um, his name was Irvin Staub. Um, he, he was a psychologist at University of Massachusetts, and he actually had lived through the Nazi years himself. Like, he, he had been born in Hungary into a Jewish family and, um, you know, was saved by a, a Christian woman who helped feed him and his family. So so he had this amazing life story in, in, in itself, and he was studying um, this phenomenon that he called altruism born of suffering. And he had actually done a study showing that if you had been through certain types of significant trauma, um, specifically what he studied was uh, violence or, or, or natural disasters, that people who have been through these kind of difficult events are more likely to empathize with others who have been through tough times too, and even more willing to uh, donate money to to help them. That, that's the way that he sort of quantified it in the study, like that these people were more willing to donate. So it's almost like, um, you know, people who had suffered felt a kind of kinship with, with other people who were going through suffering. And maybe that was part of the motivation that, 
that was um, compelling them to to help. So so that that was fascinating. That that was another big piece of the story for me. And then around the same time, like you know, I, as I was sort of, sort of starting to come out of this this period of depression, I, I also learned about some of the research that was going on um, here in the Bay Area of California, where I live at Stanford, there was the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and, and Education. And um, then in San Francisco, there was the psychologist Phil Zimbardo, who you might know because he did the infamous Stanford prison experiment back in the 1970s. Um, he actually spent most of his career studying um, the origins of situational evil, but then um, you know, a few years ago when I learned about this, he decided that he wanted to study heroism, like what factors give rise to heroism and can we instill heroism in, in kids and adults in, in just about anyone. So it, it was definitely the, this confluence of things, you know, events in my own personal life, as well as new research and things I was learning about. And it, it all started to roll together into something that that, that I never expected. And, you know, I guess my goal was sort of to create a roadmap for people based on some of this new science that's coming out. Like, are there practical takeaways that we can use in our lives if we want to go on some kind of journey where we both enlarge ourselves and try to give something back to the world? Um, what can science teach us about how to do that? And, and that was the idea that ultimately I built the book on. Okay. Awesome. Uh, ton of stuff here. Uh, so, you know, I, I want to go back to the very beginning. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about your childhood. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting that you mentioned getting sort of uh, obsessed with this dark side of things, reading about genocide. Mm -hmm. I, I guess for me, the question is, how has your childhood and the experience from your childhood influenced your worldview uh, as an adult and as, even as a mother? Right. I, I mean, definitely, I think it has made me a more skeptical person in some ways, because I, I know so, sort of the depths of evil that people are capable of. But at the same time, like, my personal life, like, I had a very happy childhood, like, my parents were actually amazing, selfless role models for me, like, my dad um, would go overseas and do uh volunteer medical work, basically um, providing care to underserved communities and in different countries where ordinarily people wouldn't be able to receive this care. And then my mom just uh, on a personal level, like she was very good at noticing if somebody had been feeling a little down or just, you know, maybe it was a little bit lonely. She, she would be the person to go over and visit them, um, try to lift their spirits a little bit. And she would never you know, try, try to make herself look good for doing this. This was just something that she did because it was the kind of person that she was. So I, I think, you know, during this time that I was learning about some of the worst that human beings are capable of, I, I also was sort of in this warm environment where I was exposed to some of the best that we're capable of too. And I think that underscores what I was talking about earlier, being aware that there definitely are the two sides and that there's a huge element of choice of which path we decide to go down. Like oftentimes, um, you know, pe people will talk about things like, Oh, do we have 
an altruistic instinct? Is it hardwired? And I mean, yes, there's biological research, um, you know, brain scans that indicate that there probably are some biological or hardwired origins for this type of thing. But I, I always like to say that we have this incredible element of choice where we get to decide the path that we go down. I mean, we might have these instincts and this, these impulses, but we are the ones who get to decide what we do with them. Hmm. I love that. Uh, as I'm listening to you say that, a question comes to mind for me uh, when you said that you're a bit skeptical. Mm -hmm. And I wonder when you yourself have gone through an experience that is somewhat painful, how you keep the skepticism from turning into cynicism. Mm, yes. Yeah. I think cynicism would be sort of a more pervasive worldview that things are always going to be this way and they're, they're not going to get better. And I think the support that I've been able to get as I've gone through difficult times in my life is one of the things that I think has helped me to reassure myself that it's not always going to be this way. Like even if one person treats me badly or, you know, I experience a huge letdown or disappointment that that really is not the end of the journey. That's j just one phase of the journey. And because I do have the streak of skepticism, pessimism, whatever you want to call it, that's something that I've had to work really hard at in myself. And I have to consciously tell myself, you know, it's not always going to be this way. Um, you know, I, I've had great success as well as difficult times. And, you know, the wheel just keeps on going around. And um, it, it's important to remind yourself, to, especially during the toughest times to, to have that perspective. And it, it's work. Like, I think some people just naturally have a more optimistic temperament and they, they can do this without too much effort. But for me, it's been, it's been an effort for sure. Hmm. Well, actually that makes a, a perfect setup to, to kind of dig deeper into this. You know, it, it's interesting because I think fairly consistently what I hear in every story is a very, very dark moment uh, that also ends up being the turning point for just drastic change. You mentioned finding a, a silver lining in all of this. So two questions. One is one that I've asked before. Actually, both of them I've asked before. Is is there something that differentiates the person who finds the silver, silver lining from the one who doesn't? And mm -hmm. is this kind of a difficult experience necessary for radical change and radical transformation? Because it seems consistent across the board. As, as much as I, I, I really like to think, I don't think I've talked to one person who was hasn't told me that the most painful experience of the life also is the most transformative one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that first question, what distinguishes the person who finds the silver lining from the person who doesn't like that has been something that's been on my mind for a long time. And as I recall, I raised some version of that question with Irvin Staub, the researcher who studied altruism born of suffering. And, you, you know, I asked him, well, obviously not everybody who suffered is going to come out of it with an enhanced appreciation for others and an ability to appreciate their pain. Like some people don't do that. Some people kind of shut down, they turn bitter about the entire world. So yeah, what makes the difference? And he, he pointed to a couple of things. Like one thing he said was 
that if during your difficult time that you receive support or some kind of redemption from, from somebody else, like, you know, it could be a therapist, it could be a close friend who you, you talk with all the time and is able to give you perspective on your problems, but that that support is, is really, really crucial. Like if, if you don't have that, I think you're much more likely to succumb to the sort of point of view that things are bad, they're going to keep being bad. And, you know, there, there's nothing redeeming that can come out of this. But but if you do get that support, that tells you that not all the world is like this person who is hurting you or the situation that hurt, that's hurting you, that there is caring. And so it, it inspires a little bit of a more optimistic mindset. Um, and, and also just having um, a, a role model, may, maybe somebody in your life who's been able to turn the difficult event in, into something redeeming, in, into some kind of, of of altruistic purpose. And um, there's a story that I tell in my book that I love about um, a, a young girl who was bullied and she, she just experienced the, the worst kind of bullying. Um, and she, she actually wrote a book about some of the abuse that she went through, but um, she grew up to create her own anti-bullying organization. And, you know, I asked her why she did it. Um, You know, she had a great career in public relations. She didn't necessarily need to do it career-wise, but she said, um, you know, just knowing that I could help other people avoid some of this pain that I've gone through, like, that gives my life meaning. And, you know, I think that's part of what it is for me, like, not so directly, but if people can take something from my writing or, or what I say that they can take with them and, you know, use it somehow along their journey to to make their lives better, or to avoid some kind of pain, like, that's incredibly meaningful for me. Like, that's why I do what I do, I, I think. So, yeah, th- this concept of making meaning from the difficult things that we go through I think as you say it's so common to creative people I'm not sure if it's a necessary ingredient for stepping up and doing something really great but it's definitely something where if you approach the difficulty the right way you can kind of turn it into some kind of gold that you never would have expected you know I love that and I think that you and I share that in common uh, mm-hmm. about sort of making meaning from this and, and using it to help other people. I mean, that's really a large part of the mission of what we're doing with Unmistakable Media is, exactly. is to help people take pain and, and catalyze it into really, really powerful things. I mean, into different types of movements, into conversations that are important. And to see it honestly gives me more joy than any other part of doing this. Yes, absolutely. And it, it should, it's basically the journey coming full circle. Like, you know, you've been through these difficult times, but you've had the strength to not not only to muscle through them, but yeah, to to give something back to the world. And it's like the most amazing kind of alchemy, I think. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the other things that I really love that you brought up, and I, this is always one of my favorite questions to really dig into because the answers are always so fascinating, is this idea of confluence Mm -hmm. of how all these dots um, and experiences in your life connect to the message of this book and the message of your work. Mm 
Right. That to me is such a magical moment that people have. And yet part of me wonders if that is something that just happens and we can't plan it, or can we look back and figure out where the dots connect, where the confluence is to figure out what that message and mission is. Right. I I think like you're suggesting, it's definitely easier to see in hindsight how everything was able to come together. I'm not convinced that you can a hundred percent plan for something like this. You know, if you had asked me 10 years ago, if this is what I would be doing, I would be like, well, I don't know. Like I, I knew I wanted to write, but that was the only clear thought I had in my mind. At that time, I, I didn't have a clear idea that I, I wanted to help people develop their altruistic or heroic capacities. Like that wasn't really so much a thought in my mind. It was sort of the, the series of events, just things that happened in my life, plus um, the research and reading that I was doing. And yeah, it, it came together in a way that in retrospect seems kind of magical and like something that I couldn't necessarily have plotted out. Like if I sat down the day I graduated from college and tried to make like a 10 or 15 year life plan. No, like, you know, this is not something that I could have envisioned, but I think in many ways this is better than I I would have envisioned. So I think that I would encourage people to just, you know, keep your hands open. Don't try to clutch on too tightly to a particular outcome or a particular way of having things happen because the surprising things that happen can actually be a lot better than uh, what you had been able to picture at the beginning of the whole thing. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's absolutely true and definitely seems to have been the case in my life. Uh, I think that, you know, that makes a perfect setup to really get into the meat of what I wanted to get into with you, uh, where, you know, you really talked about cultivating this capacity for, for altruism and I really want to get into the science behind it and the things that you learned uh, from the process, uh, from the research, and everything else that happened throughout writing this book, because there's so many valuable insights in this book that uh, I, I learned so much from. And I, I thought it was, you know, it was funny as you even find friends of ours who had been on the show in that book. <laughs> yeah, it's a really, really small world in that way. And I know I, I've seen people that I've interviewed pop up on your Facebook page and it's like, whoa, yeah, just these amazing coincidences. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, but anyway, yeah, like my, my book is definitely about both heroism and altruism. And, you know, one of the things that I argue is we all have sort of this idea in our minds that a hero is somebody who's like a physical hero who, rescue somebody who's drowning in an icy lake or pull somebody out of a burning building or something like that. that that's the very stereotypical definition of what a hero is. But I, I think we also have to look at people like social heroes who might not necessarily be putting their lives on the line, but who really you know, might put their livelihood at stake, might put their reputation in the community at stake, um, for the sake of defending a larger cause that they really feel strongly about. And I know there's controversy about this, but I I would point to the case of uh, Edward Snowden. Um, You know, he, you know, it's clear to me that he felt very strongly that the public needed to know what he knew. And despite what he would have to suffer personally in order to get that out there, that he was willing to do it anyway. So, so some people would call him, Uh, one of these social heroes. But the other thing that I say is is that people who are really high level altruists, like, you know, not necessarily like a Mother Teresa level, but somebody who day in and day out dedicates their lives to helping others, like, to me, that that's a type of heroism, too. So so a lot of what I, I would like to do is make the argument that heroism isn't just like one 
narrow way of behaving or interacting with the world. Like it, it's something larger than what a lot of people think. And it's something that's more accessible to, to everybody. So, so yeah, that, that, that's kind of the big platform that I start on. And then I, I get into a little bit of the, the, the research. Um, can I talk about one, one of the most fun, uh, chapters that I wrote in the book where I actually, uh, got in touch with an economist at the University of Oregon who is doing these um, experiments where he put people in an fMRI brain scanner and he, he looked at what peop- what was happening in people's brains is they were making decisions with real money actually about whether to give to a certain charity. And what he could see um, in, in these people's brains, like first of all, usually what happened was that um, an area of the brain associated with rewards was activated, um, called the nucleus accumbens. And so what that suggests is that for most people, when you give to something that you consider a worthy cause or a good cause, um, it feels good. It's very rewarding. It's like, you know, having a glass of wine or or seeing a friend that you haven't seen in a long time. But at the same time, there's a continuum. Like, uh, he, the, the researcher Bill Harbaugh called some of the people in his experiment egoist because they showed less reward related activation in their brains w- when they were given to charity. And then, and then the altruist showed more reward and like the, the people who showed more neural reward were likely to give more. So that this is probably a quantity where people's brains just naturally differ. It might be just one of these biological variations that we have. So so I, I asked him, um, you know, will you be willing to take me into your lab and scan my brain and do some of the study on me? And then based on my brain activation, can you tell me whether I'm more in the egoist category or or more in the altruist category? And Bill Harbaugh has just enough of a crazy sense of humor that he took me on and he he was willing to do it. And so I, I went through the whole scanner. It was like the first time in my life that I'd ever had um, an MRI done. I, you know, was presented with all these scenarios. I had to decide which charities I wanted to give to. And, you know, there were all these various conditions. Like sometimes I was told people were watching me while I was deciding to give or, and other times I, I was not being watched. So there, there were all these variations, but um you know, I, I don't know if I want to tell people who, who haven't read the book yet what um, Harbaugh's final findings were about my brain, but it, it was just a, uh, a a really fun way to, I think, bring the science to life and um, really explain what's going on in this field for people who aren't necessarily going to uh, page through all the technical papers themselves. So let me ask you this. Uh, is this the capacity for altruism and, and selflessness, something that some people are inherently born with, or is it something that gets cultivated or can be cultivated? And how does this change us over time? I mean, you said, you know, in, in the short term, and we know that it immediately activates, activates our reward system, but mm-hmm. what happens for over an extended period of time to somebody who basically makes altruistic, altruistic behavior a habit? Right. That That's a great question. And one of the things that we see from the longer term research is that people who make a habit of altruism, who volunteer, say, more than 60 hours a year is the cutoff point that some of the studies use, um, 
those people who lead the altruistic life are not only healthier mentally, like just more satisfied with their lives in general, they're also healthier physically. Like, you know, they, they get fewer illnesses. Um, and some studies even seem to suggest that they live longer. So the amazing truth, I think, at the heart of that is that, you know, the more you're doing for, for somebody else or from the world around you, the more that you're actually um, indirectly doing for yourself. And that that's something that I think is a little bit counterintuitive to some people if they haven't yet made an altruistic habit part of their lives. But once you do, I, th- I think you really start to see the truth of it. Like in my life, um, I- I've been a mentor for an organization in East San Jose that is basically like in two schools there that, um, you know, don't get the greatest funding, don't have the greatest test scores, and not a huge percentage of kids end up going on to college. But so, so they pair those kids, usually ninth and 10th graders, up with adult mentors from the community who um, basically get to know them over the course of the school year. And um, the kids choose their own goals about, you know, do they want to raise their grades or have a better relationship with their parents or they decide what it is they want to do, which was really important to me. But th- then the adult is there just to support them and, you know, not tell them, you know, you should do this, you should do that. Like, I'm, I'm the older person, I, I know what you should do. But just to, you know, ask questions that help them remember what, what they're actually wanting to be about and, you know, helping them keep their eyes on, on the long term and away from the little things that distract all of us on a day-to-day basis but just being able to form relationships with these kids and also the elder adults who are part of this program um it, it just brought so much richness to my life and you know i i have no question that it has made me a mentally healthier person probably a physically healthier person as well and i wish that that kind of experience is something that everybody would have a chance to do and sort of demonstrate the truth of that for themselves. Cause you really have to try it. Like it's one thing to read about it in my book or, or somewhere else, but it's another thing to put it into practice and see the rewards that you are able to generate. Hmm. So let's do this. Let's talk about a couple of things. Let's talk about putting it into practice. And I want to hear more stories from the book. Cause I know there's some really great ones uh, that really surprised me. Uh, about some of the research that you conducted personally. And and a lot of it was research that wasn't in laboratories, but in real life situations and real life settings, which I found fascinating. And I'd love for you to talk about some of those. Um, And then we'll start talking about, you know, really making this a practice and and how we do it without necessarily saying, you know, necessarily saying, okay, you know what, I'm going to donate my life to the soup kitchen. Right, exactly. And, you know, of course, it's possible to go too far with this. And, one of the things that that I talk about is balance, but you had mentioned some of the sort of impromptu experiments that that I had done myself. And one of the things, um, I was having a conversation with Phil Zimbardo, who's the psychologist who's in charge of the Heroic Imagination Project in San Francisco that's doing heroism research, um, advocating for heroic education and, and things like that. And I asked him, well, you know, if you want to be somebody who's sort of a a hero in training, who wants to be ready and willing to, um, you know, step forward and lead a heroic life, what are some things that you can do just on an everyday basis um, 
to train yourself and prepare yourself that way. And he said, well, one thing that you can do is just sort of do make a habit of doing small um, good deeds for other people. It can be something as simple as um, helping somebody across the street who is struggling with groceries or, um, you know, just striking up a conversation with somebody in a social setting that you can tell is feeling lonely and awkward. It, it can be anything along those lines. But he said the idea behind it is that when you make a habit of doing this, you're training your brain essentially to pay attention to what other people around you need. And that orientation on others is really going to come in handy in your future, whether you run across, um, you know, another smaller situation like this, or a big time situation where you really have to step up heroically, whether it involves life saving, or just standing up for for a big principle that's larger than yourself, like this other oriented focus is really going to help you. And I said, Okay, well, well, that's interesting. Maybe this is something that I can put into practice and, you know, kind of do my own investigation into this. So one of the things that I decided to do um, was, well, I, I had lived in San Francisco for for a couple of years. And I think that's actually one of the first places where you and I met, uh, Srini was in San Francisco. And I knew how big a problem it, it was, just the level of homelessness in the city, um, you know, people on the streets and not able to get food on a regular basis and and things like that. And so I, I had spent some time with people in New York um, who called themselves the real life superheroes. And one of them really inspired me because one of the things that he does all the time is pass out, you know, n- not money to homeless people, but these care kits that he puts together himself. And, you know, it might contain some food, uh, a clean pair of socks, uh, a bar of soap, some toothbrush, toothpaste, just kind of necessities that can be surprisingly hard to find sometimes, even at shelters and places like that. And, you know, if you're just getting through day-to-day living on the street, this is the kind of stuff that could really come in handy. So I decided that what I was going to do was just bring like a big suitcase with a, a bunch of these care packages and then really just start striking up conversations with people on the street, like people who ordinarily I, I might not talk to, I might just go right past and you know, you see how it evolved. And if they express to me that this care package is something that might help them, then then I would give them one. And so that, that's what I started doing. And I, I just walked around and um, you know, one of the things that surprised me that it wasn't so much about giving the care packages away, like people appreciated that. And they definitely thank me for that. But that just by showing interest in this person, like the rapport that you could develop with them, even in a five minute conversation, I would be, you know, sharing personal things about myself. And, you know, we would be able to identify with each other in, you know, these amazing ways, even though on the surface, our lives couldn't be more different. And so I think, you know, one of the things that I really took away from this whole thing was, hey, you know, even if I don't have these care packages with me all the time, just um, what can be just as meaningful to somebody else in a tough situation, if not more meaningful, is just talking to them like a human being and, you know, not showing judgment or, you know, getting into these status hierarchies that we all tend to fall into if we're not careful, but just 
you know, person to person and completely open and the possibilities of that are, are awesome. I, I think, you know, for both participants in that kind of dialogue and that that's something that I've tried to, to carry with me since I did that. I love this. You're, you're sparking so many ideas in my head. I'm thinking, wow, I'm like, what if people on Halloween, instead of just dressing up in crazy costumes, went out and did this instead? It, exactly. And I mean, so, somebody could really run with that and make it a movement. And I think that the results would be amazing. And if somebody listening to this decides that, that that's what you want to do, I would say, yeah, go for it. Full speed ahead. Well, you may have convinced me to do it for Halloween. I've always <laughs> wanted to dress up as Superman because all I ever got was those stupid Superman pajamas for costumes. You know, the ones that Jerry Seinfeld makes fun of. It, exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to say that my son has a pair of those too. So, <laughs> it's probably a common affliction of parents that, uh, yeah, the, the Superman pajamas. And, well, you don't get the real costume. You never get the real cape and you look like an idiot. It's like, yeah, but I'll wear that because I look like Superman. Right. And my, well, my problem was living in upstate New York, I always had to wear a coat over my costume anyway. So even if it was a really good costume, it didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, one of the things that I really want to talk about, uh, and I, I do want to spend a bit of time on this, one of the common threads that I've been listening to as I've heard you tell this story is your ability to consistently get buy-in from different people and not just people that are random, but people who are busy, people who are influential. There mm -hmm. is a sense of almost creating a movement of your own for this kind of work. And I'd love for you to talk about that aspect of this whole thing, because it seems like so many influential people and so many really powerful people um, really helped shape all of this and lead you to where you're at. And I'd love for you to expand on you know, that part of this and, and how important mission was as a part of that. Yes, and that is something that I will continue to be grateful for and was even, you know, pretty surprised by when I first started on this journey, when I started reaching out to the researchers, um, to the people who were doing this kind of work and making the new discoveries, I wasn't sure what kind of response I would get. I was like, well, you know, maybe I'll be getting in the way of a book that they want to write themselves, or maybe they just don't want to deal with me because I, you know, they've got too much stuff going on in their lives. But and maybe, you know, th there's some connection between the fact that these p people study altruism and heroism and how generous they were willing to be with their time and with their insight. But yeah, I was continually bowled over by the generosity and the amount of time that people were willing to spend with me to make sure that I understood the import of their research and what they were explaining and that I, that I really got it right for, for a popular audience, which is a little bit tougher than it seems. I, I mean, I'm not sure that I necessarily think of myself as part of my own movement. I think if there is a movement, it's much larger than just me. And maybe that's part of what carries this all along. Um, I, I was just at a conference this past week, the Hero Roundtable Conference, and it, it was scientists, but it was also teachers. It was people from all walks of life who are committed to the concept that each of us has the power to make somebody else's life better and to improve the world. And that that's really the concept that's behind my book. So, you know, it's not a personal movement. I think it's a larger social movement. And in some sense, I just happen to be lucky enough to be carried along for the ride or, or sort of swept along. And it, it, it's been an amazing journey for sure. So let me ask you this. 
if somebody has a movement, a project, or a mission of their own, how do they get the kind of buy-in you've gotten from the people that they need to get buy-in from? Mm, yeah, so sometimes persistence is necessary. Um, don't necessarily take no for an answer. Um, you know, if you email somebody and you don't get a response, don't get a response. You re-email them, don't get a response. Well, just pick up the phone and call them. Like, I, I know... No, nobody uses the phone these days, but sometimes that that's what ne what's needed. Like maybe that person, their assistant reads their email and they just deleted it without that person ever having seen what you were about. And so, you know, the reason that you couldn't get them to give the buy-in was because they never were aware of what you were doing. Or maybe they did see it, but they're like, you know, I'll, I'll think about this later. I've got a lot of stuff on my plate. So just, you know, I, I think very courteous persistence goes <laughs> a long way in that direction and not getting deterred. Um, it, as a journalist, I think you have to develop a tough skin for this kind of thing. You have to be willing to try and try and try and try again and not, not get too phased by, you, you know, if initially it seems like people aren't buying in. And also just finding alternative strategies. Like you might think that there's one person that your entire story revolves around and if you don't get them to buy in, then your whole project is scuttled. But um, just lo looking for alternative ways to to make the same overall thing happen, um, you know, you can get just as good of a result. So I, I think just that persistence is so key. And of course, you have to have a good idea and it has to be something that matters to other people besides just you. I think that's an essential ingredient too. Mm -hmm. But But if it's something that you truly believe in, then you have to have that persistence to back it up. Well, let's do this. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit and I want to ask you two questions. One, what has actually happened in your own life as a byproduct of this work? Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this entire past week is a great example of that. Um, as a result of having met a guy named Matt Langdon while I was doing my book research. Now, Matt, um, he was one of the first people who was starting to put together heroic education programs a few years ago. Um, and at the time that I was researching the book, he, he was starting something called Hero Camp in uh, northern Michigan. So I was going to go see this Hero Camp, see what it was about. But and, and I did write about that in my book. But what ended up happening was that Matt and I became friends. We, we sort of stayed in touch. And then I found out that he, he was sticking with this heroism idea and he he was creating something called the hero roundtable that would be sort of this sounding event where people you know researchers writers like me real life heroes um you know is kind of a an incubator where, where pe these people could bounce their ideas about heroism and what makes a hero and all of that off of each other and that all of that would also be shared with the world so so as part of this whole hero roundtable concept, um, I had to get up and speak about my own life and, and what inspired the book in, in front of a huge uh, audience, you, you know, in this big auditorium, um, performing arts center. And honestly, it was one of the most terrifying things that I've done because, you know, even though I've done radio spots and things like that for my book, being in front of a live audience with no notes either, because this was sort of a, a TED style talk where you, you couldn't use notes. Um, it, it was terrifying. Like I, the level of trust that I had to have in myself. And I shared 
some pretty personal parts of my story, like some of the things that I've shared with you here about how some of the hard times in my life had given rise to, um, you know, amazing results once I was able to use the lessons that I had learned from those hard times. And the response that I got, like even from young people in the audience was just incredibly humbling. Um, You know, people came up to me uh, telling me that they were going through tough times, like right then, right when they had been listening to that and that they, they had been able to get something out of what I was saying. And really, you know, that that's what it's all about. So it was an incredibly stretching experience for me, like going beyond what I thought necessarily my capability was, but the rewards that I got back from it were just amazing. So that, that, that was one of the things that came out of it. And from time to time, I just hear from people like it's great to get messages from readers. And you never know what chapter or what point is going to impact or, or really hit home, depending on where that person is in their journey, what, what they're going through. So, so yeah, I think, you know, just putting it out there and having good material, uh, what comes back in, in the ways that it develops into something new, new that you use for the next part of your journey, um, I, I think has been incredible. And yes, it, it's scary to put your creative work out there. Not all the responses are going to be good. Like, you know, there are people who haven't liked my book <laughs> as well. And that, that's that been tough for me being a perfectionist and, you know, wanting everybody to like me and that whole story like that. But, you know, I, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't have it any other way. I think it's important for me to get that feedback too. Like I, I want to experience all of it. And I think it's all going to be important for whatever the next phase turns out to be. And I I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I'm kind of content to keep feeling along because it's been working out okay so far. And yeah, we'll just see where it takes me next. Awesome. So, you know, one final question before the very last one. So really not the final question, but second to last question. (laughs) Uh, You know, you come from a background of traditional journalism and mm-hmm. one of the things that we're seeing is that media is in this just absolutely disruptive state. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're wondering, you know, how are the large media companies going to make money? I mean, obviously they have deep pockets and they're, you know, got time to figure it out supposedly. But I'm really interested in kind of what your perspective is on the way media is going to look in the future as somebody who has come from a world of traditional journalism. Right. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how it's going to look, but I think one of the ways that I would like it to look is I I think, you know, I'd love to be able to take some of the best of old media and somehow fuse it with some of the new stuff that's been coming down the pike. Like, I I love that there is so much exchange and so much dialogue now. Like, you can post a piece online and have thousands of responses. And, you know, if you want, you can even have dialogue with with experts, with people that can add to your work. And then the next piece you write, you're, you're going to have a different perspective that actually came from somebody in your community who was reading that. And I think that's awesome. But at the same time, I think we have to find a way to be able to fund the kind of in-depth reporting that traditionally, um, you know, brick and mortar type media outlets, newspapers and, you know, dead tree type publications have financed. And, um, you you know, on the internet, I'm not sure if we've quite found a way to make that profitable. I have journalist friends who are 
basically raising money from various people online in order to do the kind of reporting projects that they want. And, and that's, that's interesting. I, I haven't tried that yet myself, but, but it points to the way that that kind of reporting, if we don't make a decision socially that we want to support, um, you know, the, this in-depth effort to get at the deeper truths, that, that that could easily just fall away and that journalism could become just, you know, an echo chamber where everybody is just kind of batting the same um, press release type stories back and forth. And that that's what I really hope does not end up happening. So it's very much an environment that's in, in flux and... I hope that people will be willing to stand behind this idea that it is important to to do the kind of reporting that sometimes requires boots on the ground, requires more time, you know, requires following somebody around for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, whatever it is. Um, and that's not necessarily there uh, at some of the online outlets yet. But I think there are a lot of people who want to get there, so... So I, I do think, you know, I, I'm still fundamentally optimistic about this. I, I think we, we can move this in good directions. Awesome. Well, I mean, that's that's a rabbit hole that we could spend two hours talking about. I think Absolutely. we could do a whole episode just on that. So, yes. Elizabeth, I want to close with my final question. Uh, and this is how we close all our interviews. What is it in your mind that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Yeah, that that's a great question. And I think a, a lot of people think that unmistakable means that people know who you are, that, you know, you've defined yourself as a person as distinct from others. And, and, and that's fine. But I, I also like the idea of unmistakable as sort of being a conduit, like that you have come across something that has the potential to improve life for somebody else or make them think about things differently in a way that moves them forward in, in some way that they might not have perspective have expected and and then you know that you find a way to pass that on to, to the world so so yeah uh, unmistakable is when you've captured something that has the potential to improve the world and you find a way to to get that out there wow i love that i don't think i've ever heard anybody say anything like that before for that answer so well, Elizabeth, uh, I have to say this has been really, really phenomenal. Um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your insights with our listeners here at The Unmistakable Creative. I've really enjoyed this. Yes, th thank you so much for having me. And it it's been a mind-expanding conversation for sure. Awesome. And for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.